this is the Baileys. All my gear was touching the rock and it was just making this dull thud noise, which meant that the whole sheet of rock that I was climbing on was completely detached or loose from the main wall. Duncan's like, don't put it in, don't put it in. You'll, if you fall, you'll rip the whole block off and kill us all. And, you know, I was just like, at that point I could hear what he was saying, but I was so nervous Mm -hmm. about falling that I slipped the cam in and it was hollow. The bail list is brought to you by Wild Earth. From buying your first pair of gym shoes to putting up first ascents, they've got everything you need to get sorted for wherever you are on your climbing journey. Check them out on Instagram at Wild Earth Australia. This is The Bail List. Hey, I'm Nicole Robbs. Duncan Steele and Hank Morgans are incredibly accomplished climbers who've taken on some of the biggest objectives in the world, El Cap, the Eiger, Mount Cook. But when they set their sights on the first one-day ascent of Lost Boys on northern New South Wales Mount Warning, even they thought they might have bitten off more than they could chew. My name is Duncan Steele, um, rock climber, um, I am also a principal of a senior school at Kelvin Grove. Um, got into climbing about around 40 years ago. Um, I Are have, you that old? Yeah, Damn. sadly. <laughs> no comments from the peanut gallery. <laughs> um, so, yeah, um, you know, I've always been an outdoor person. I've always been into adventure. I did a lot of solo bushwalking through my early teens. Um Lamington National Park and I was looking for another challenge and uh, back then TAFE ran rock climbing and abseiling courses with adults and I saw it in the newspaper I don't know I know people don't read the newspaper anymore they get the news on the internet but um, yeah and I went and did the course and I fell in love with climbing from then on Um, yeah so I've been doing a lot of things around Queensland and, and achieving a lot around Queensland I've Obviously, I did whistling. I was the first Queenslander to do whistling kite um, at Mount French, which was so satisfying for me. It took me a couple of years to be able to do that, and it was quite a big thing for me. Um, I've done nearly all of the really scary death route climbs at Prod too, and yeah, I've done a lot of things around and put new routes up all around the place. But um, my focus was definitely on the big things and thankfully i'll throw this next person i met this guy thank you hank morgans uh i don't know what to say really i run a successful tree business in southeast queensland and i got into the outdoors just because of the love and beauty of exploring and not knowing uh i think that i started off hiking and camping more than anything else and then slowly moved to more challenging terrain where I got scared. I self-taught myself how to trad climb a frog with a very minimal rack that people laughed at me with. And um, yeah, it was pretty scary now that I think about how I did things. Um, Yeah, in 2011, I had a really messy breakup with my wife at the time. My dad got really sick and my mum had breast cancer. 
I lost my dad a few months later, found out my wife was cheating on me with my best friend. Uh, I lost the Australian Tree Climbing Championships by 0.25 of a point to represent Australia. It was a pretty hard year and um, yeah, I just needed to regroup and I just started pushing my limits with how far I could run, how far I could climb, what I could really mentally and physically do as an escape to sort of put all that pain behind me. Um, my house flooded too, which sucked. Um, anyway, I started finding new climbing partners and someone that I climbed with introduced me to Duncan and um, yeah, that sort of led to really big, crazy adventures, which is what I was looking for. I was never planning to be the most um, strongest climber. I just wanted a broad base from bouldering to sport climbing to big wall and mountaineering. And, um, yeah, I was just really hungry for adventure and just, yeah, Duncan and I clicked and here we are talking about our crazy time together and how we haven't died on several different trips. Duncan and Hank, thank you so much for having a chat with me. You're welcome. And Duncan, thank you for letting me into your home. That's all good. Man. I appreciate it. Honestly, I was kind of expecting your home to be just like climbing gear, lining the walls and, you know, just ice axes everywhere because you're such, both of you are such legends of the sport. I mean, when I was looking at your YouTube channel, Duncan Steele, I mean, I have not really met any other Australian climbers who are so accomplished in so many different diverse fields, climbing and mountaineering and alpinism. It's incredible. Well, um, you, I'll answer I, I, this one. I though. haven't, I haven't taken it to the storeroom. Well, no, I, 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 my climbing gear. I is. feel like if you were single, <laughs> then it might be a completely different story. But now that you've got the lady in your life, you're in trouble. You got to keep it neat and tidy. Well, and I've got the climbing wall downstairs uh, above the car, so I've got that all sorted too. So yes, there's a lot of climbing gear hidden away. It's hidden in plain yeah, sight. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and you guys obviously have a very strong relationship over many, many years. And I know this because you've colour coordinated your outfits. I know, right? Yeah, we're pretty good at that. <laughs> <these days. laughs> You're both wearing red and kind of black. So tell me how you first met and how you established your relationship. I'll, I'll let you start. With I'll that take one. that one then, sure. <laughs> um, so I was look, 2011 and I was looking for a new climbing partner after I tragically kind of lost mine. Uh, and anyway, for one reason or another, everyone knows Mr. Steel, the man of steel. And uh, friends of mine were like, yeah, you should meet Mr. Steel. You should talk to Duncan. I think you two will get along. I'm like, hell no. I know his reputation. He was like certain death or hard man and I was like not into it and anyway one way or another we started climbing in a group of four and I would never climb with Duncan I was always with the the alternative party and one day they forced the hand and said that they were climbing together as a twosome and yeah, then that so let You guys us. are going to have to climb together today. And it was at Frog and we had an awesome day yeah, where yeah. I think at the end of the day I could barely drive home and it was like well, yeah. my arms were all loose and yeah, it just sort of went from there and pretty so, quickly. So pretty much from that day, you know, 
we, we just sort of clicked really well that day at Frog and we, I, we did a lot of routes that day. But um, there was a trip that I had planned um, to Europe coming up. And uh, over a few weeks that we were climbing together after that first time, the person I was going with pulled out and said, no, I can't go on the trip anymore. So then I, I'd been talking to Hank and I said, well, you know, I knew we had common interests in doing big things and in, in taking on big mountains, big walls, big adventures. And my original trip that I really wanted to do was not just a sport climbing trip to say this. It was, you know, to do the Matterhorn and, and go to this really significant route in the Dolomites. And as soon as the pull, if this other guy pulled out, I've gone, Hank, you know, we went climbing. I made sure I arranged climbing the next weekend with him. And I said, are you keen? You know, I really want you to come on this trip. You know, it'd be really awesome. So it's the second time you climbed together. He dropped that bombshell on you. Uh, probably third, third weekend. Third fourth, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it just happened to be perfect timing. I was competing for Australia in a tree climbing comp, which was in that same block period as Duncan was going to be in Europe. In so, Switzerland, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. Yep. So... Um, I just moved my flights from, instead of going to the tree climbing comp first, I went rock climbing first and then finished with my tree climbing comp and that worked in with his dates. So yeah, it was kind of almost fate made us come together with, um, that trip. So then that helped us become more focused about climbing together and really getting our act together with, you know, learning each other's strengths and weaknesses in conversation and, and also just your technique in climbing together on big things you've got to be able to know you're on belay know you can climb um know that other person puts gear in a particular way so you can take it out and it's a whole bunch of stuff you just learn when you climb with someone and especially at frog you know you can sport climb at a cliff and just do single pitch climbing but if you go to Frog or do some other bigger stuff around the place, that's when you really start to learn how you work together as a team because you're, you're a team. You've got a team. When you're on something big, you're a team. You're not two people. And you guys are quite a dream team. I mean, like I said, you're so accomplished. You've climbed at El Cap. You've climbed all over the world, some huge objectives. Um, how did the Lost Boys get onto your radar? Well, very much so. It's been It's a climb that, you know, I think pretty much every Australian climber who's into adventure and big stuff knows about. Um, and it's just over the border. And that was the thing. We'd been trucking overseas and, you know, we spend quite a lot of money when you go over there and try some of those adventures. And here was something just sitting in, in our backyard that was only two and a half hour drive away that I knew was a huge adventure. Um, and I'd been involved with that climb for quite a few years, but the big thing that I wanted to do once I'd done it once was to try and climb it all in one day. And I knew that would be a really big thing to be able to do because it's 568 metres of climbing at grade. It's graded grade 25 with a bit of aid. Um, and that is really hard. And on most of the pitches... Are, solid for the grade. Are, are really solid for the grade. And there's a lot of the really hard pitches. And the other thing is too, you're not protected. There's not a lot of protection within each pitch. It's very limited in what how you can protect yourself. It was bolted minimal, minimally and there's very little natural gear that you can actually put in as well too. So it's not only hard, 
it's not only massive, it's not only, whilst you can just see, you know, look out from the, when you're climbing it to the Gold Coast, you know, you're in this remote lo location that's kind of a five hour hike, hike through a thick rainforest. Minimal so, mobile reception. <clears throat> yeah, at times there's minimal mobile reception. And yeah, and it was just sitting there and we didn't have to spend huge amounts of money because I think it, we did so many adventures where, and we had so many losses because you don't have wins every time when you want to go to a mountain and try and do something because the weather or whatever avalanches or whatever else, the earthquakes or whatever else, stops you from achieving a goal. You still achieve something. and then, and But you spend so much money doing anything. And here I said to Hank, well, this thing's sitting in our backyard. It's not going to cost us a lot of money, but it's sure going to give us a lot of adventure. I think, I think seriously, we were just looking for something to do over a couple of weekends. We were thinking, yep, awesome, it's right there. We'll just roll in, do it, see you later. Thanks for coming. But it didn't really turn into that. And I think from my side, there's an old rock magazine that was on my mate's coffee table years ago with the pictures um, of the first ascent and you see this huge big black slab with this tiny little speck in the middle of it and you're like wow that's pretty full on I mean at that time I'd be lucky to be leading grade 18 or something like that and I never thought that oh I'd do it but I was like wow I wonder what that would be like to be in that position or do that climb and uh, I think it sits in the back of your mind like oh yeah okay maybe you know maybe maybe but at the end of the day, I was like, no, no way. I didn't have the person. I wasn't as skilled enough. And then we slowly just kept trying bigger and more better things or harder things or stupider things, whatever you want to say. And then finally, it came to kind of getting the green light. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I said to Hank, I you know, think we're ready to go for this challenge, you know. And I think we're the two people to do it. Now, there were others and... There were some other young guns thinking of doing it and thinking they could do it. Um, but, yeah, I just... Having done the climb back in 2000, um, over pretty much a four-day period, I knew it's... Yeah, I knew what we were going to be up against. So, yeah. So, what you were aiming to do was the first one-day ascent yeah. of the Lost Boys. Yeah. And to put it in perspective... What is the magnitude of this route compared to other stuff in Australia? I think well, it's 580 metres long to start with. It's got a fierce reputation for being a super challenging adventure route. It's poorly bolted in terms of its old school homemade hangers. And, I don't know, some of the pitches were 40 metres long with one bolt. And, you know, it's just like when you're talking about taking huge falls onto slabs, you're looking at, you know, minimum broken leg, if not worse, in a super remote area. Uh, that's not too appealing to many people. Yeah. And the other thing is too is the... It's the Woolman Shield and Mount Warning, the, the indigenous named interpreter, I believe, is Cloudcatcher. Um, and literally, if there's a hint of rain that's going to happen in the southeast corner of Queensland or the, you know, that corner of New South Wales, it 
hits that mountain. Mm. So anything, and and the any weather, any bad weather, it hits that mountain. So well, it's slab and steep, so it goes slab, head wall, slab, head wall. So most people don't like slab climbing and they definitely don't like run out slab climbing and then you don't want hard climbing off a face onto slab potential falling yeah because when you fall on some of these runouts that we had to do and run out it means you're you're climbing above your last piece of gear would be four to five meters so if you fall you're falling 10 meters double plus all the take up and slack so you can throw in another two meters so you're falling 10, 10 metres. So I don't think there's too many people who would like to fall 10 metres off something down and over a steep part to then hit the slab below. You're going to break your legs. You're going to break something. So so that's that's the thing about Lost Boys. It's incredi- incredibly dangerous in that you cannot fall. And then, like Hank said, it's just a really big, intimidating black rock face. It's huge and it's black. And it, you just can't see a lot because of the colour of the rock because it's so dark. It's really hard. No one goes there. Yeah. There's no chalk. It was mossy. Yeah. I mean, probably the last person to climb it was Duncan. You know, and that was almost bloody 18 years ago kind of thing. Yeah. So <clears throat> There's other people who have been done other things around it. But yeah, not a lot of people have actually put themselves on it, and simply because it's not, it's not set up like a sport route, like a multi-pitch sport climb that you do at Tibragargan. It's not like that at all. Mm. So yeah. So you had one unsuccessful attempt. Just run me through what happened there. In two thousand and seventeen. To be honest with you, we had quite a few unsuccessful <laughs> successful attempts. But in 2017, we, that's when we really gathered our forces and we, we sat down and made a really good plan of what we'd do. We got a good team around us of people who would help um, with making this one-day ascent happen. Um, we went in there on quite a few occasions to set it up, as in getting, you know... Carry the gear in. You know, carrying sleeping gear in and... Uh, and you know, abseiling down the whole route and putting an exit, you know, leaving an abseil line there so at the end of we could abseil really quickly to the ground because we knew it'd take a, a very long time to do it. We stashed food halfway, food and water halfway at the top, so we spent a lot of time setting it all up. We wanted to have it documented, so we had photographers, film people sort of lined up. Um, but yeah, in 2017, it didn't happen. Um, well, we tried once or a couple of times and mm. got spooked out by how brittle the rock was, how difficult the climbing was. I mean, we were both climbing exceptionally strong mm. at the time, and it was below our pay grade, if that kind of makes sense. But man, it really was packing a punch. And, and you, I don't know, we just <coughs> different climbing style and... The fear of falling, yeah, it was pretty hard. So, And in 2017, um, we both injured ourselves pretty badly. You did your ankle, I did my shoulder. In completely separate things, completely separate to climbing. Um, so that delayed us doing it, and then it pushed us into bad weather. It got started to get too hot. Um, 
And we didn't have a good winter that year either. Uh, so there wasn't a lot of really cool days. So We left our gear in. We went in one weekend, tried, got four or five pitches up, worked out those sequences thinking we were going to have to do them in the dark, came down, stashed our gear, all of our climbing gear, food, camping equipment into this area, left, you injured your shoulder, I hurt my knee. Our gear stayed in there for three two months, two two months or months. something before yeah. we could even think about going, going back, back in. Again. Yeah. And it got to a point where we actually forgot how much gear we had or what was in there. And I went back in to go and collect <laughs> stuff, uh, thinking I left my backpack in there and then totally right, yeah. forgot that I'd taken my backpack out and I had to carry all the rack and all the gear in this tiny mm. little day pack looking like... Yeah, it was like an overloaded Sherpa with, I got the worst... Bits and pieces hanging off from everywhere, yeah, you know? rubbing on through, my shoulders. Through a really thick rainforest yeah, for four or five hours. Thankfully, my pack was in there, so I was all right. Yeah. <laughs> I was, I you got all the big bulky stuff, and I got all the heavy <laughs> yeah. and small stuff. Yeah, so 2017 was a complete write-off, and I think at that end, we almost wrote the mission off in terms of yeah. it was too hard, too scary, not worth the risk to life um, and I think that's always there's always a line in the sand and you choose whether or not you accept stepping over and sometimes you don't even realise you've stepped over that line until it's far too late and that's often when you have catastrophic disasters or accidents yeah. so your first serious attempt in 2017 you had a full support crew you had gear stashed yeah. all over the place. Yeah. Your second serious attempt a year later was completely the opposite, right? Yeah, yeah. it was a lightweight alpine trip, really. Yeah, it was just <laughs> us. The, the pressure was too much. Yeah, yeah. But just before that, I just think, I just wanted to pick up on something that Hank said. Mm. We, you, you do get to a point where you learn from your previous experiences. Now, we did two trips to New Zealand. And we wanted to climb Mount Cook and a whole bunch of mountains. And we went there in, in 2014 and we copped some really bad weather. Now, there, are other, there was another person in, in the hut with us at the time because you go to a hut up on top of the saddle and then you launch off from this hut. Um, anyway, it was bad weather for nine days and we couldn't get out for nine days because you had to get a helicopter back down again and we were in there with a couple of other people and this one guy in particular and we were learning on that mountain a lot of skills and we were using the bad weather we were going out in bad weather and we were doing whatever we could do to learn so we would dig a snow cave we would go down a crevasse and rescue ourselves out of a crevasse you know work out what clothing we needed <clears throat> yep. for the bad weather because we weren't really you know in the end we, I realised I didn't have all the right clothing. And there's a whole bunch of things we learned on that trip. Now, there was another guy who was there on that trip. And all he wanted to do was to try and summit the mountain. And he would try and get us to go when maybe there's a snapshot of maybe half a day of good weather to go and climb Mount Cook. Now, you can't do that because you're risking your life if you want to take that on. And then you're upsetting everything else at home. Anyway, fast track to the next year, because that was 2014, 2015, we went back to New Zealand 
and we just timed it that it was a great weather window um, and we were very successful but prior to that it wasn't it was not good weather it was exceptionally bad it was exceptionally bad weather and the same person who was with us in the hut was there in 2015 before we went over and very sadly he pushed uh, we he pushed to go and do the summit and he lost his life with the two other people he um, went with. he went with he, they got caught in an avalanche on Mount Cook which is it's quite common it happens after really bad weather so I think there was quite a there's been quite a few things we've learnt from previous trips so we're very measured about what we do so when Lost Boys unfolded in 2017 that's what I'm getting back to we did a stock take of everything and said okay now, what are the risks involved? What are, are we biting off too much more than what we can chew? You know, what should we really do? And then when 2018 rolled around, that's when we yeah. reassessed and... We had a pretty good system too with our equipment and how much mm. was too much and how much was yeah. too little. Like everyone was like, well, what about if this happens? And it's like, well, we've got this small little thing. Yeah. I'd done a lot of long distance running and breaking records for that and mm, mm. I learned how little equipment you could need if you moved fast and light. So yeah, we had EPIRBs, we had a you know, a lot of things set up, we had people set up at home, but what we didn't do I mean we would have loved to have had someone there recording it all because we don't have a lot of great footage of it. Um, but in a lot of ways we wanted to remove the pressure from us and our approach was light and fast. So we thought we'd just go in there and just go walk in with everything and then just go the next day. So go in on the Saturday, hit on it on Sunday, and then finish it on Sunday, walk out on Sunday night. Back in time for work Monday morning. Correct. That's it. <laughs> so talk me through uh, how that attempt happened. So you walked in on the Saturday. We so, tried a few weeks before, three weeks before, two weeks yeah. So there was a three-week gap yeah. between each, because we, we only had to go twice. So there was one weekend we went in, and our, the plan was I go around, pick him up at 7 o'clock Saturday morning, drive down, hike in, Saturday afternoon, climb the first four pitches, get them down pat. Because we would be doing them in the dark. We would be do, we'd start at 3 o'clock in the morning, um, and so I'd chalk it all up so it would be nice to see in the dark. Um, and then obviously come down to the ground. That's probably around about 5.30 as the mm -hmm. sun's setting because it's winter. And then um, go chill to sleep, out, chill eat. out for a while, eat, have something to eat, get to bed as early as possible because we're, we're waking up at 3 in the morning to get on the cliff no later than 4 a.m. Um, and then to just smash it out, just to go, climb, climb to the top. Just keep climbing, keep climbing, keep climbing. And on that weekend... We came up against some significant hurdles that I didn't expect, and I know Hank hasn't climbed beyond a certain point. We'd done the first four pitches the previous year before, but we hadn't done all the rest, and the condition of the climb had deteriorated so much that it actually surprised me. How, what do you mean it deteriorated? In what way? The holds were breaking off. They're, they're they were just, like crumbly. Yeah, and so the holds, if you tried to pull anything, they would snap off. Mm. Um, there were actually physical pieces missing off some of the pictures that I remembered. 
Um, the weather was against us. It was super, super cold and yeah. so windy. It was really cold and really windy. Um, the yeah, the whole day we seemed to be like we weren't going badly, but it seemed like we're always against the wall. The wall was against us, and we're always pushing against this wall to try and get through. It just didn't feel right. Like we, we, we got up on the wrong side of the bed, or whatever. Yeah, I don't know how you any... say that other than it just was a gut instinct. Yeah, mm-hmm. and we couldn't get any flow between the two of us. We normally. You know, we get that flow and we're moving well, and but we couldn't seem to get that happening. Mm. And we got to the, the halfway, halfway and we were like, bit out, and we were like, wow, it's late in the day. Yeah. Yeah, and at that point, we were like, man, if we pushed on from here, it's only one way and it's to the top. Mm. And it would have taken forever. And we just decided to call it a day. And because there was no, there was no out. So the previous year, we'd put static lines up that if this happened, we could. We could exit, so um, yeah. So whereas there was nothing, none of that this year. All of those ropes were, were, yeah, they were there, but they they were old. We couldn't use them. Anyway. So you just had to use your climbing ropes. Essentially yeah, yeah. To do it was just it, it was just what we yeah. had, and because we were light and fast, we didn't have a lot. We only had two sixty meter ropes, so we, we only had just enough for us to be able to abseil back down again to the ground again. Yeah, we just so if we went to if we went to the top, and there's a point uh, on the second half where you completely divert away from the abseil stations. And as soon as that happens, that's about three pitches in, there is no retreating. And then you've got, I think it's three really hard pitches to do before you've got the easy one to finish off on. So yeah, it's a big commitment once you leave the um, abseil lines. And I can imagine you wouldn't want to find yourself there in the dark. Yeah, exactly yep. right. You know, and you're stranded. What are you going to do? You know, and it like, was freezing, and that was not something yeah. that we. Yeah, we just decided that it wasn't right, and it was actually a huge psychological problem for me. Uh, I left, and there was not any disrespect to Duncan, but I said, "Man, I need a break from you for a week or two. <laughs> don't like, don't call me for the next week." And we would religiously climb and train together, and I just said, "Man, I just need a week off. Like, don't talk to me." And I took my girlfriend <laughs> rock climbing at um, Bria and just spent some time reflecting on how bad it was. There was a point where I was just, yeah, I was just devastated like, that I wasn't going to achieve a goal, but just emotionally drained from how dangerous and scary it was. Normally, when we climb together, the belaying is the break from the mental, physical, Mm. and you have a bubble of, like, a cocoon of, like, it's going to be okay, but on the belay on Lost Boys, you had to be so focused and so Mm. watching and trying to help out, and, yeah, I was was wrecked and drained, and, yeah, I went to Booyah, and, I don't know, it took a while for me to realise that Mm. new routing is really scary and hard, no matter where it was. And I think that it was Tuesday training that we didn't mm. say anything, mm. but we just looked at each other and it was like Saturday, and then we just knew that that was yeah. that was game time. Yeah, there was another good weather window. Um, we had yeah three or four good weekends of weather, and I said to Hank, "Look, if we're going to do it. We should do it this Saturday and have another go." And that's he's he's yeah, I'm in. 
Um, but yeah, and like very much, I was the same too. Straight after when we were driving home after it at whatever hour, um, I was like, no, no. And we rang up a friend of ours and had a chat to him and we were just like, no, no, this is just too dangerous. It's, it's not it's easy just... to look into the fear of, like, you know, you, you're virtually kind of looking at death in the eyes and saying, yeah, I'm going to accept the risk to, I'm, I'm willing to roll the dice on this one. Mm. So what made you go back? I just really wanted to do it and get it done. I just, I knew, I knew we could do it. And the desire to succeed was so big inside me that I just couldn't let it go. And I get like that sometimes. Sometimes I'm fine and I can just let things go and let it sit and, you know, that's fine. But this one, because I've been associated with the climb since 2000, you know, so 18 years of association going to that climb, I just I just wanted to do it really badly, you know. I think, too, we spent a lot of time... <laughs> talking with each other about what happened what Mm. could happen Mm. Mm. you know how can we improve what needs to happen to do it and and because we'd been to halfway now it was kind of like oh in our mind it was like well that's halfway yeah we know what we're up against halfway we can easily streamline the process it'll be smoother then it's only halfway to go again so it was almost like the bottom half was the cruxes in terms of that one of the pitches down lower is the crux and so there are some hard ones up higher but it felt like mentally you were more than halfway so we could do mm-hmm. it. And mm-hmm. I think that we were honest with each other about our fears and our insecurities about a lot of things and that just really helped. You know, Duncan was like, oh, yeah, okay, I can totally understand. What about if we did this? Or how about if we do this? And yep. vice versa. So we mixed up our techniques as well. Mm. And the thing is too, what we always do is we work we always we're a team so it's not about who's leading and who's seconding it's who's on who, who's on at that point in time so if it's not if i'm not on my game it's his turn it's it's he's on his game so we work on our strengths and don't worry about our weaknesses because we will have weaknesses when you're on something enormous you will have weaknesses at some point in time during that journey and You've got to work on each other's strengths and let that person take the lead because they're strong at that particular point in time. And then you take over when it's your turn and you're strong and you're, you're sorted. So that's, and we've learned that a lot on the big mountains that we've done too. There's been quite a few times where, like we did the Matterhorn in Switzerland and very much so there were times when Hank had to take the lead. You know, he had the strength, he had the, the, the strong legs and had to go. And then there was other times that, you know, I could come through and really do it as well. So you learn, you learn to work as a team because your end goal is the summit, or doing the big wall, or doing whatever. Mm-hmm. So yeah, um, you can't put your ego before the team. I think that's what I'm trying to say. So we we really talked about that a lot. So when we headed back the the, the thankfully last time. Um, we were really focused as a team and we were really looking out for each other's mental state as well too. That was a really big thing. We were quite happy to read the situation and to just keep Call working. it as it was. Yeah, call it as it was. Now, we on that time, so once again, we went down Saturday morning, 
once again we went up on the first four pitches and set everything all up and then we obviously went to bed early and woke up at 3.30 in the morning and we went for it. Now, we didn't, we didn't um, have fun and jokes the whole way up that wall. It was really difficult, really hard. There was some, we had to be really honest with each other at times and we had to swap leads and do all sorts of things to just get through to the top. Um, and the first half went really well because we knew it and we knew what we're up against. Second half, we didn't know, and the second half was the deterioration of the rock was so much, it was so significant, and it was very challenging. But because we'd made all those great decisions on each other and looking out for each other, and re you know, having those honest conversations with each other, and saying, Well, I'm not up for this, I am go, and we got through the top. Mm. And we yeah, did it. There's probably a couple of times, other than the huge runouts and the fall potential. One of the ones was that time when I was leading on the pitch and it was pretty much no gear for 15 metres. It was pretty easy climbing, probably like 18 or something like that, but when it's run out, it feels way harder. And there was this small hole in the rock and it looked like an Eskimo had cut through the ice and Duncan knew that I was going for that for protection, but at the same time, all my gear was touching the rock and it was just making this dull thud noise, which meant that the whole sheet of rock that I was climbing on was completely detached or loose from the main wall. And Duncan's like, don't put it in, don't put it in. You'll, If you fall, you'll rip the whole block off and kill us all. And, you know, I was just like, at that point, I could hear what he was saying, but I was so nervous mm. about falling that I slipped the cam in and it was hollow. It just like kind of flaked a bit and I was just like, oh, I'll just leave it there. It probably will fall off and, and kept climbing. And a few metres later, the slab met the head wall and I could actually put my hands around the slab or the edge of that rock and just get them right in. It was only like two inches of rock or an inch of rock. And I remember clipping the bolt on the head wall and just thinking holy Jesus that was insane and then yeah Doug came up pale faced and pretty white after that one and um, the other one that really stands out in my mind is the pitch you were leading on and the the old abseil line was oh, in the way yes. and I just went to go and flick it flick out it of out his way and it caught on the edge of flake of rock and a shield size rock as detached as big as an esky detached you wouldn't think about it but it was so weird like it was in the way and and hank's just flicking it and it was on this it looked big and then all of a sudden it just let go and it must have been just sitting there and it was as big as an esky and it came straight down towards me and thankfully because there was a slab in front of me um it smashed about made contact with the slab three meters just above me and splintered because the rock is so bad it's been into a million pieces. I've still got three dents in my helmet from it. Um, he's a second helmet. You You're welcome. Yeah. Yeah. Doug, yeah. Not, uh, look, I obviously don't have anywhere near as much experience as you. I don't want to tell you how to live your life, but you might want to retire that helmet, maybe. <laughs> uh, it's not as bad as the other one from uh, Mount Cook when I split it. Yeah, yeah you split, you split yeah. that helmet. Yeah, we, 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 we are very good at, like, retiring the gear. And yeah. so, yeah, I mean, yeah, when, you're on, yeah. when you're on the wall and your helmet's, like, dinged up, 
it's like, well, that's at least I've got a helmet. That's still, right. You know, like, I was fine. Yeah. I was like, sweet. It's all good. I'll worry about the dents later. So how do you have an experience like that three quarters of the way up the wall or two thirds of the way up the wall and push on? I mean, you obviously oh, you really have easy. to push on at that point, yeah. but like <laughs> mentally, what do you do? You just, Sum, summit or plummet. Yeah, yeah, like just, that's <laughs> it. Like, you know, at that point, it's actually, you're, you're in that, you're in that point of no return because yeah, the, the route moves away from the abseiling line yeah. and you couldn't get down. So it's like yeah, you we committed had, all the way. We had no option. There, yeah. there was no option. So and we just had to keep going. And, you know, we it was really difficult. The climbing got harder and harder and the sun is setting and you just want to get to the top before it goes dark because you start, you start in the dark and it's really fatiguing climbing in the dark because you can, I mean, head torches is, you know, these They're days wonderful. are very good. Three meter bubble kind of thing. But yeah. you, you just, <coughs> you just never want to really have to climb in. You don't mind climbing in the dark and then come into daylight, but it's nothing worse than going into dark climbing. It just doesn't feel good. But yeah, I we think, had to do it. We I think too, to you know, 7.30 we finished in the dark. The Two end, hours we had to do. end of the route too, it's wandering and windy yeah. and the head torch only see. sees so far and you, the bolts so far apart, or the, the, the placements of the gear are well, there so was far. No bolts in the last piece. Yeah, it was zero. it's just like you, you don't have a choice. You kind of you I think you're on a route, and yeah. I wasn't even tied in. Remember that? Well, yeah, I don't know if you should say that. Yeah. <laughs> you the can way. tell me. The last, <laughs> the last belay, there was there was no anchor. There was just I have no idea where it was. So all I did was tuck myself in on a ledge behind some big lilies, and um, just sort of use my body as an anchor, and and belay him up and then the last pitch I knew there was nothing it's a grade 15 so it's not particularly hard it's pretty freaking scary just, and dirty just, yeah. And, yeah and I thought the chances of him finding anywhere to put some natural gear in would be pretty limited and I don't think oh, I can't remember even you putting any gear in no I don't think so I think no. you just like wandered I waved the rope around the lilies some, yeah, yeah. Trip past all those big lilies right. <laughs> that's right. basically it and so, then I don't know I mean the the feeling of relief when we summited was unreal because yeah. it felt like okay we survived it wasn't like hell yeah we summited it was more like yeah we survived and then but see we've been there so many times and and you you're only halfway if you get to the summit you're only halfway you then got to get down safely and do all the rest of the stuff get home safely so yeah, so yes, we got to the top and like we were really happy. You can see in the video we're we're really happy, but there's a little bit in our voices that you can probably sense that yeah, we've got to get down 500 meters in the dark now because it's it was 7:30 when we summited, and we've got to try and pick up all these abseil points. These abseil points are 20 years old, and in actual fact, we found out only a few weeks ago that they're that brittle that you could. One got snapped off with the guy. With yeah, the boys, the boys passed one and they used the beaner to lever it and they just snapped, snapped it. it off. So we were abseiling on that, but it could have just snapped off. So, you know, there was... Anyway. Well, but, hang on. I feel like there's a... Let <laughs> me take the reins here. So we got to the top and we found our shoes 
from last from year. last year. We left them yeah, in the yeah, bag. Yeah, 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 because we stashed our shoes from Which last year with water and food. Super thankful. The water was had... off and the food had been... Eaten. Yeah, <laughs> the, the containers had been the, whatever rodents had got into it all, yeah. so there was no food. But, but at least you had shoes. Well, well we I had mean, our shoes. 15 hours in tight, uh, high-performance climbing shoes, it's <laughs> like, you know, my feet weren't the same again, but... Um, yeah, we found our shoes, which was awesome. But also, Dunk was just so excited about getting his shoes on and getting going that he just started to wrap on last year's wrap rope. And mm. I was like, he took one of the ropes with him. So I was like, oh, sh- sugar. You can swear. It's That's fine. all right. No, I'll keep it, I'll keep it PG. <laughs> and he just started wrapping down on his Gregory. So I thought, yeah, this will be awesome. This will be fast. <laughs> I just want to get out of here. And... I knew that it went down quite a long way, 60 or 70 metres to the next anchor. And, you know, we climbed up past the rope and we could see that it wasn't in great condition on our way up. It wasn't as bad as the one 10 years old. No, it was dead. That was yeah. shocking. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was taking him so long. I was like, what the hell's taking him so long? This is on a... And so then mm-hmm. eventually I felt the weight go off and I'm like, oh, well, I don't have a choice. I've got to do the same, even though I was like, nah, this is so dumb. And I started on my um, Grigri and it got so stiff. I was like, I can't feed. The rope wouldn't mm. feed through. The rope had swelled so large that it... And yeah, the sheath was bunching up on the um, Grigri. So it's, halfway down... It's not feeding down. through because the sheath is just bunching up and jamming in it. <laughs> and what I had to do halfway down, which I knew he'd be quite unhappy about, was you got to change over to a um, ATC because that's the only... And you literally have to feed it into the ATC to get down. So, yeah. So, so I, I had a very to, unhappy hand. I got, I, got, I got to a point where I was like, oh, I can't get it. And then I was like, God damn it, I know why it took him so long. So I had to switch over to my belay device. And then I'm like, okay, so I was slightly better. I was still jerking. I'm like, God, just, just slow, easy, relaxed. Like, don't, don't mess this up. And my hand was below me and I felt this thing and I was like, I know what that is. And I stopped and I had this moment where I was just like, I don't have a choice, but I have to do this. And what it was, was where the rope had been running on the rock for the last year. It actually had worn or cut through the cover of the rope and into the sheet, into the core. Into the core. And I just had to, without, I didn't look and I just went... And let well, it, it was through. Too, it was too dark anyway. Well, I just <laughs> let it. I just let it through the device, and it, was, and it just went chink, chink, chink. And I'm then at that point, I was looking straight out. And I was just like, <laughs> and it was ten meters until the belay. And I was just looked at Dunk. He looked at me. And I'm like, I didn't say much because you were so angry. Yeah. And I was just, and we just were like, <laughs> okay. he didn't say anything. I didn't say anything. We just got our, our rock climbing <laughs> ropes. And, and we then, started our yeah. sailing on that. So, so I thought it would be faster. Yeah. But it was obviously a dumb decision, and yeah. that's fine. You do dumb decisions, then. But then, yeah, then we did the, the, the very the traditional. slow, traditional one pitch pull, one pitch pull, and yeah, it took us. We didn't get down to the ground till about uh, I think it was ten thirty at night. Um, we still had to hike back at ten thirty at night. We kissed the ground <laughs> and we sat and ate our food, and then we had to pack uh, our camp down, uh, and then we hiked <laughs> out in the dark. And then drove home to Brisbane 
And I dropped you off at four in the morning, I think it was, 4.30 uh -huh. or something. Had a shower, went and to bed. Went to, yeah, I got home around 4.35 and then he had to get to work at what, 7.30? Yeah, I had to be on site at 7. I had to be back at work at 8 o'clock in the morning. I was supposed to be 7.30 but I gave myself an extra half an hour. And I had to stand in front of 300 year 12s and cats on at 9 in the morning just when I'd just come off a climb and got back to the car and got home at five in the morning. So. And you can't explain to people who don't climb what has got you in that headspace where you're so wired or so confused or tired. I mean, <clears throat> did, did anyone get it who you saw I, at work? My students know exactly all of my adventures. I had actually been talking to them about this year 12 cohort. I'd been talking to them about my challenges in it for two years. And they knew I had gone down. So, yeah, when I stood in front of them, um, I, I sort of didn't say a lot, but I just sort of said to them, oh, this has been pretty surreal because I've just got a, I just, just got home two hours ago. So, and they kind of knew what it was about. Yeah. So. And I couldn't fit my work boots on my feet because they were so deformed and it's like painful. I had to wear sand shoes to work, so... For the day, it was and, like, and yeah. I normally get out of my office a lot. Um, I don't, I'm not a principal that sits in the office. Obviously, I'm an outdoor person. I can't stand being in office. But that day, I think I stayed in my office nearly all day because I was so exhausted. Like, okay, we'll have meetings. We'll catch up with some meetings today. I don't want to go outside and walk around. I'm really tired and sore. Yeah, I think that a lot of people glamorize big wall climbing and adventure mm. climbing and there's nothing glamorous about it like i've never had anyone like come up and be like oh that was unreal like high five you know it's so good you know they don't see the the massive rashes or welts underneath your arms from where the backpack rubs where you've been you know climbing and lifting your arm for hours on end or you know the serious harness rash yeah. that you get yeah. from you having got, heavy gear and no just, skin you, left you know, yeah. there's like, oh, the fact you that you lose half your nails on your feet because you're fear about, in there. And, and also the other thing too is the mental side. You, no one can see the mental uh, drain, but I climb, I've climbed at Fog for many years and I know how to climb at Fog really well, any climb there. And the next weekend we went to Frogs and I couldn't even get off the ground. I couldn't even bring myself to do a climb I've done many times. And it wasn't because I physically couldn't, it wasn't because I wasn't capable, it was because mentally I was shot. I just had given everything to that ascent and I had mentally nothing left to give. So So from the time you stepped off the ground to the time you kissed the ground and had something to eat on the way down, what kind of time frame was that? Um, well, we did the route in 15 hours from start to when we got to the top and then obviously to come down I think it took us three hours to come down so I suppose 18 hours 18 hours from when we woke up to when we came back to the ground again when we left the ground yeah 18 hours it seems to me from all of the things that you've told me a number of your ascents prior to this one kind of culminated in mm. your ability to climb this route what did you learn from this particular experience that you've then been able to apply to other climbing that you've done? I think that, um, firstly, a lot of people not intentionally doubted us, but 
you know, there's a lot of people who said, oh, it's not possible, it can't mm. be done. And we'd experienced that in previous trips or adventures. I think the lessons that we learned in the journey to Lost Boys and in Lost Boys doesn't just necessarily relate to rock climbing. It helps in general life mm. and negotiating mm. the challenges and the pitfalls and those hard knock situations so i mean i think you just learn a resilience that you're actually capable of doing way more than you perceive possible and it's almost to a point where i'd say the mind is the limiting factor for a few years Mm. i had a pretty bad 2011 and I went on a journey to learn about myself and I just learned that the body can handle so much more than mm. you can actually push out and it's the mind that says, no, nah, I yeah. can't do this. But yeah. if someone put a gun to your head and said, you must run 100 kilometres, you'd run 100 kilometres even if you've only ever run 5 kilometres. no puts a gun to your head or anyone's head. But, yeah, you know. but figuratively speaking, yeah. you know, and so... But that's yeah. very... It is... That, that is very true because you can talk about, oh yeah, it makes me, you know, below better. It makes me, you know, use this equipment better. But ultimately, it is the mental game. Climbing is really, large portion of climbing is a mental game. It really is. And if you can master the mental game of climbing, then everything else falls into place. And the big adventures, like everything that we've done, like 21 hours, on, you know, climbing for 21 hours. We've done that many times um, where you've got to be so drained. So we, we've, we did the evolution traverse where we had no food left and we had been going for three days, I think it was, and we had virtually no food left and we got caught in a blizzard. We're in the middle of nowhere and there's no one going to help us at all. And you know, we had to just sort it all out and still do another 24 hours after that with water that we could get, but no more food. So, and it's the mental side that really gets you through those times, you know, because your body will just, like Hank says, it will actually keep going. I mean, obviously there's a point where it will stop, but um, but most definitely that mental game is a really big thing. So how do you train that mental fortitude? How do you, Duncan and Hank, train that mental fortitude? Just exposure. You know, like just put yourself into a position. I mean, oftentimes people ask me, oh, I want to do Lost Boys. Do you think I can do it? And the answer is no way. If you're asking me that, are you ready to do it? The answer is no. You'll know when you're ready to do something. And you'll... You'll never be like, oh yeah, I'm 100% keen, I can do this. There'll always be doubt and sort of a bit of like uncertainty. But at some point, you just know. Like, mm. you just have this ability to know that that's within your limit, that's possible, and it shouldn't be a problem. And we just got really good at just working out where our limit was, where that line is in the sand. And we were very good at keeping each other honest with. This is what I'm comfortable with. This is my limit. If it goes beyond that, then we're going to check in with each other and say, I'm nervous about X. What do you think? And if we couldn't rationalize it, we were always okay to just say, hey, that's cool with me. It's not our day. We can come back again Mm. because the mountain's not going anywhere. And we just Mm. knew Mm. that we wanted to keep our 
relationship or relationship going, um, and that we'd had some pretty major failures and we'd come back and regroup. Yeah, that's exactly right. And the other thing is too, is that everyone's happy to train their bodies. Like we're all happy to go train and climb and get better climbing, but we forget we've got to train our brains as well. And that is just the same. You've got to train your mind as well. So you've got to put yourself in those situations and stretch yourself a bit further and stretch yourself a bit further. It's not an immediate thing. You've got to incrementally build that mental capacity, resilience, you know, keeping so, your thoughts together, being able to focus at what's in hand, shutting everything out. But that only comes with practice and continually practicing that and pushing yourself to a limit and then beyond it a little bit too. Sometimes Not too it's far. forced on you, you know, the yeah. weather changes from yeah, exactly. your plan. I don't know, in Tassie I had an accident where one of my friends took a 10 metre fall on a really remote sea pillar and needed to be rescued it's like man you don't plan on that but you just build from those situations and mm-hmm. yep very much so mm. yeah one of the things we talked about when i first came in here was like which epic which particular story we were going to talk about because <laughs> it a lot of the things that you've done qualify for an episode of this podcast. And not to say that you are making a lot of mistakes, but it's because you're pushing yourselves, right? Yeah. So how do you know when you've crossed the line to into danger, in, uh-huh. into being too at risk? Yeah, I think in all of my accounts with close calls, near misses, tragedies... There's always a few telltale signs of, hey, you should have been paying attention. This is going wrong. You need to reel it in and stop. And that might be something as simple as, you know, forgetting to untie the knot on the wrap or not tying the knot in on the wrap or, you know, just Mm. these weird things that seem really minor at the time, but they build on top of each other to make problems. So... You know, if we had a pushed on on that first attempt in 2018 when we were at the ledge at 2 o'clock, it would have meant that we were in the dark, in the crux pitches, and we just made that decision that it wasn't worth it. And, yeah, and you then, know, it could have been a completely different story. And that loose block that came off, maybe we would have been a bit higher, maybe that would have been flicked, and maybe we, one of us would have been killed. So you, you just, I don't know, you've really got to... Listen to your heart and you, your you guts. Just, yeah, it's very much... You're in an environment, you're in an uncontrollable environment anyway, when you're on a mountain or something big anyway. So you just need to listen to all of your senses and you do that together and you know when it's not right and you just make that decision. So it sounds like the other key ingredient to doing big objectives like this really is a good relationship. Yeah, Yeah, very much so, absolutely. I couldn't have done anything, everything. I was, looking for, I was looking for someone like Duncan. I mean, I initially was not interested in meeting Duncan because I thought that he was too far from my skill set or level or level of comfort, you know. Um, and I'd searched for a year or so with some pretty horrific sort of close calls with near misses. And when Duncan came along, it was almost like, oh, hell yeah, this is really good because... I knew I could count on him. The time we came off the Matterhorn and we were just walking across that slab mm. with a thousand mm. meter drop, un- <laughs> like tied into a rope, but no gear. 
I just looked back and I was like, hell yeah, it's like, well, I'm sweet with this. Whereas if it was with another person, I probably would have untied and just being like, I'm not doing this with you. And so, yeah, I think that ability to 100% trust the other person with your life is a special bond and you don't get that with everyone. And so I could say without doubt, Duncan's got my back and, and probably, hopefully, yeah, yeah, vice versa. I know Hank's yeah. always got my back as well. And that's the thing. You always know. I always know he's got my back. He knows I've always got his. So that's why we always survive. Um, doesn't mean to say we don't get into some really difficult situations, but then we can survive and, and look after each other. It's not always beers and Skittles no. as well. Like we've had our moments where, you know, oh, we've, yeah. we've had our little domestic sort of thing. And yeah, it's not all lovey dovey. No, 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 no. So yeah, it, it, it has its moments. But yeah, we've just seemed to be able to like work on it. And our goals were strong enough to kind of mm. keep us together and focused. Yeah, yeah. I've got one more thing to ask you. You said to me earlier on that you essentially took 2019 off. I mean, you didn't take a break from climbing, but you said you did deliberately sort of didn't have any big objectives in the year after you did Lost Boys, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Why yeah. is that? And and what's next? We we've been we had been hammering really hard for a lot of years. I think so we've done we, an international trip nearly every year every for year, six or seven six years. Six or seven years. And then Lost Boys, obviously, we hammered on that for two years. And I think... I think We ran out of things to really do. We, like, we, and, and like there was only... We, didn't, we only had a certain amount of money. money you know, and, we got jobs. We're not sponsored <laughs> athletes. You know, if anyone wants to give us money to do travel, <laughs> like, yeah, hell yeah, I'll totally take it. But We're forking you know, out all this money ourselves. Yeah. And yeah Sometimes so. opportunities just don't arise and you need a bit of time to gain motivation or regain... Like, it's like a battery, you know, and, it, yeah. and the Lost Boys, we were empty. We, were we, we needed to be yeah. recharged and... Yeah. You know, we had put our solar panels out and just, just spend time just with our partners have, and, and renoing and fun. Just yeah. going doing some sport climbing with no pressure. Well, you know, it's pressure with sport climbing if you want to put it on, but you know, not really the same pressures as doing not life things. or death. No, no, you can no more like you know, just like, am I going to crank a twenty-eight or yeah, whatever? Yeah. Yeah. Just, I wish those were my problems. Yeah, <laughs> just, you know, have some fun, yeah. and that's what we did for a year, Probably which was lovely. You know, catch but up you know, at friends. the end of twenty nineteen, we we started to focus on some big objectives again but unfortunately 2020 has been the year it has been so uh, but yeah we're still talking and still looking at what's next and just waiting for the um we're waiting for know, COVID to go, go away so we can go back overseas again I mean maybe New Zealand will be the possible the first place that we'll be able to go back to yeah. and New Zealand's got some really good objectives over there that I'd like to do yeah Duncan Steele Hank Morgan Thank you so much for sharing your story with me. You're very welcome. It's all good. Thank you so much for checking out this episode of The Bail List. I don't know about you, but my palms are sweating just listening to that story. 
I want to say a big shout out, as always, to Wild Earth Australia for supporting this podcast. It's a labour of love and without them, I would not be able to do this. Really appreciate it. I want to say a huge thanks as well to everyone who entered our prize draw for Adventure Reels TV. Congratulations to the winners. I hope you enjoyed feasting on the best uh, adventure films out there at the moment. Uh, Make sure you stay tuned because I will hopefully be doing more prize draws in future. So check out our social media accounts at The Bail List on Instagram and we're on Facebook as well at The Bail List. Now, look, I don't want to start anything, but I just want to warn you that this snippet for next month's episode is a little bit spicy, a little bit controversial, and I take no responsibility for any fights on the internet that come out of this following statement. Enjoy. He's gotten into ultra marathons at the moment, so um, that's weird, but cool. And you, he... Ryan, you can't just come on this podcast and slam every sport that isn't climbing. Hey, do we have a moment to talk about slacklining? Because <laughs> I'm going to fucking shit all over it. <laughs>